Hello, I'm Adrian Wharton, Chief Executive of Film London and the British Film Commission, and I'm your host for Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, our new podcast series where we talk to creative talent from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. In this week's episode of our six-part series on genre, we're looking at drama, that illustrious and highly respected art form. Dramatists from across history have evolved into some of our most prominent cultural icons, and dramatic works are amongst the most carefully crafted and considered works of fiction. This week, we're talking to two experts in the field of drama. First, we speak to Sarah Gavron, the British director who won a BAFTA TV award for her early work, then went on to direct Suffragette starring Carrie Mulligan, Meryl Streep and many more, as well as Rocks, the hackney-set emotional masterpiece which received seven BAFTA nominations earlier this year. We also have Robert Kurvitz, the lead designer and writer of contemporary cult classic video game Disco Elysium. Released in 2019, the game won four Game Awards, including Best Narrative, as well as BAFTA Game Awards for Debut Game, Music and Narrative. First up, here's Sarah Gavron, discussing finding her voice and filming in London. As we, it's traditional in these kinds of interviews, I'd just love to talk to you first about how you got into directing. I know that you're an NFTS alumna and that you worked in documentary uh, in your sort of early days. Can you tell us a little bit about your entry into this game and uh, how the documentary days influenced the drama director you've become? Yeah, so I wasn't someone who knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker from very early. I, In my teens, I was really interested in drama and art at school and um, didn't wasn't aware of the role of the filmmaker in a, in a case of you have to see it to be it. It wasn't until I was in my sort of late teens, early 20s and started to see films directed by women and some British filmmakers that I thought, okay, there's someone behind the camera here who's got a vision. And that made me very excited. And I um, did a short course, um, a one-year course in filmmaking in Edinburgh and made some shorts and really, really loved the form, but thought that I was quite politically minded and thought maybe I want to make documentaries and do things that can change people's opinions. And so I went and worked for almost five years in um, BBC and, and, and Channel 4, researching and working on documentaries and loved it and learned a lot um, and traveled the world, which was an amazing opportunity. But all the time I was having these fantasies about fiction films. So in the end, I applied for the National Film and Television School in my late twenties. And I went there and did three years because it was three year course at the time and made, I think nine short films. And I always like to sort of say to anyone starting out, it was really only the ninth short film that worked and um, went to festivals and won a few prizes. And it was on the back of that that I was able to make some longer work. So tell, tell us a bit about the sort of decision to leave documentary behind and how that informed your fiction work. I've read in multiple places that you sort of into this uh, in the interest of making the world a better place. What does drama give you that documentary doesn't? I mean, I think both forms are really, really powerful and they inform one another. And actually, they've become more blurred, the distinctions between the two um, over the last few years of people have made really interesting hybrid um, work like The Imposter. I, I mean, I can name lots of films that have brought drama techniques into documentary. And I found that working documentary was very useful for me moving into drama because I saw the real world and I, I got to know what made people tick. And, and when you're making drama, you know, each frame you're thinking, do I believe this? Do I believe this? Do I believe this? So you, if you have the touchstone of real life, that's very useful. 
and what I thought drama offered me, and it's very subjective and personal, and each person will find their own form, was the opportunity to tell stories that touched on truth in a different way, an emotional truth, perhaps, where you can sort of control the narrative more and um, you're less at the mercy of what's going on in real life. And you can sort of design the story. And I loved that. But I also, I'm sure I will continue to move between the two forms. Um, I'd like to anyway, to carry on dipping my toe into the documentary world. So we have to talk about rocks, obviously, because that's been the, the most recent thing and it's sort of blown everybody's heads off. Um, it's, it's been had such a wonderful response. And by now, I imagine everybody knows what a collaborative process rocks was, not just between you and your writers, but also with your cast, the amazing girls that you must be so proud of. I also know it's not the first time you've been very collaborative in your work. When you were making Brick Lane, you worked with associate directors uh, to make sure that you represented those communities faithfully. Um, can you talk a little bit about how important collaboration is to you as a filmmaker and where that comes from? Well, I think all filmmaking is essentially incredibly collaborative. Um, you know, every even auteur directors who write, direct, sometimes film and edit, they'll still be leaning on the ideas and working in a team. And sometimes you can't attribute um, an idea to any single person. It's a kind of you've all collectively made that decision or led to that decision in a scene, which is what I found, find hugely exciting because it, you can't anticipate it. You get this group of people together and there's this sort of alchemy um, that happens and the creation is just beyond what you could have imagined. Um, so I've always loved that. And I also want to acknowledge that because I think there's a lot of labor that goes on um, behind the scenes that often goes unacknowledged. And people who work for sometimes years on a film who um, input a huge amount, and especially when you're making films about worlds that aren't your own, and as a director, you sometimes do step into worlds, oft, quite often into worlds that aren't your own. Otherwise, you might only be making the same story over and over. And as you say, I worked on Brick Lane, which was about the Bangladeshi community in East London, and then Suffragette, which was set 100 years ago, and then Rocks, which was set in East London again, but a very different community or communities. And I couldn't have made any of those films without the input of those communities and creative people from those communities. I mean, Rocks particularly, um, right from the first day, um, in an unusual way, because you would normally uh, write a script first, so it would just be the writer or the writer and director and producer. Then you'd go out to cast it and find your actors to fit the roles. But we decided to write it around the young people and with the young people. So um, Teresa Okoko and Claire Wilson, who were the co-writers, worked really, really closely from that team with that team of young people right from the outset for a year before we even started shooting. Yeah, it's it's a very inspiring story, the film itself, but also the process behind it. Um, but it's it's very easy to talk about collaboration sort of in interviews and Q&As after the event. But do you have any advice for filmmakers who are sort of trying to, to get to grips with collaboration in their early career? Because it's not always easy. So how do you make sure that collaboration is a smooth process and works for everybody and gets the results you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, it's no film is easy. And um, you know, and any working environment has its ups and downs and complications and you're, you're dealing with, you know, emotional content and people's stories and worlds and it's inevitably going to be complex. Um, and, you know, and also because drama is about looking at, you know, you have to expose yourself and be vulnerable and really go to places and you want to do that in a safe, trusting environment. 
but you also know that you're going to feel exposed at times. Um, but I think that, you know, you have to, and we didn't always get it right. We were finding our way and finding our feet. But I think that the more you can do up front, the better. The more you can lay out the ground rules and communicate the idea right from the outset when you're forming your team and the team is everything and you're all relying on one another, um, that you can communicate that you want to make it in that way and that you're interested in everybody's input um, and that you're going to try and work in a way that's... Um, you know, truly collaborative and and a conversation in a way from the, the from the beginning. So that's what we did with rocks. But it is all about the setting it up um, in that in that way and getting the right people on at the right times because um, otherwise you haven't got their input from right early on. Um, I also saw in an interview you said that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, and you I think you were paraphrasing him. So please do correct me. But uh, that Stephen Frears, who you were um, supported by at the NFTS, told you that directing is the mastering the art of learning when to step back and not interfere. Can you talk a little bit about that? And has that do you trace this back to to his advice then? Yeah, he was an incredible mentor. Um, I've had a few really helpful people, um, you know, experts from film behind the scenes help me out and support me along the journey to becoming a filmmaker. Um, and I'm very grateful to them all. Yes. And his approach was always that everybody, you know, you want everybody to do their best work and you want to allow them to do that work. And often that is about not interfering. And it's about so, you know, with actors, particularly, I think, I, I did an acting lesson, I remember, where um, one of the acting teachers said, you know, you might have 30 notes, but just give one, because often actors will find their way um, through it. And if you bombard people with information, it can be quite disempowering, it can be quite overwhelming. Um, and often people will get there and they want to feel supported and empowered. Um, and if you micromanage, that can go against that sometimes. Uh, going back to Rocks, I wanted to just ask you about the genesis of it. I read that um, Rocks came about after Suffragette. You had lots of young women uh, speaking to you at the time, and also you have a teenage daughter, and you were, sort of became aware that girls hadn't been given that kind of spotlight on the big screen before. Is that your starting point when you're sort of considering what, to, what your next project might be? Are you looking for sort of unseen or underheard voices, um, unseen communities, or what's your starting point generally? Yeah, it's always very difficult to track exactly what it is because it's usually a whole collection of things that influence um, and sort of gradually grow in your head and become the film. But no, certainly I've gone around um, talking about suffragette to school children and school young people and um, became really, really aware of how engaged um, this generation are in politics, in all sorts of issues that weren't around lots of, you know, 100 years ago and that weren't even around when I was growing up. And I thought, well, where are these young people? They're so engaging, they're so proactive, they're so inspiring, where are they on our screens? And when I was growing up, and I could say the same for most of our creative team, we didn't see ourselves on screen. We didn't see female-centric stories. Sometimes we, you know, the the young person or the girl or even the woman was an appendage to the male story, a girlfriend or a sidekick. And we thought, why don't we center these stories? So we very consciously went out right from the beginning to say, okay, let's make a story about young people, but we don't know, have the answers. We don't know what this story should be. So let's build it with them and make it something that really speaks to um, the issues that they're going through right now and how they feel and how they behave and how they act and what their world is and see it through their perspective. Um, so it was about building the film with those young people. 
it feels like the perfect sort of marriage of your documentary experience and your uh, fiction work. Do you think that that will that process has informed or changed your practice as a filmmaker indefinitely? Will you has it informed what you're going to do next or, or how you intend to work from here on? Yeah, it was real learning experience. And although I had got my documentary experience and I had got my fiction experience, I did feel I was starting from scratch in a way because I hadn't worked in that way before. And I did feel I was standing on the shoulders of some filmmakers who have pioneered those techniques. Um, you know, Shane Meadows and Andrew Arnold and Ken Loach and some European filmmakers. And there were also some really interesting, you know, black filmmakers who from the 70s up, Horace Ove and others who were making films about those communities. So I was kind of watching and learning. We were all discussing. We were learning from one another about how to do that. And there were certain techniques I learned in terms of filming chronologically, which allows um, newcomers to follow the story and the narrative line and allows you to adjust it with the writers as you go in the cast. And... Um, you know, not saying simple things like filming two cameras so that you're not as restricted and filming on in real locations, which allows everybody a sense of the real world in a way that film sets often don't. So in a way, stripping away what normally happens on a film set and perhaps, yeah, using more doc documentary technique um, and also allowing the actors to find their own language and all those things were very liberating, but meant that when we were in the edit suite, Maya Maffioli, our editor, had a huge amount of footage to contend with. I want to talk to you about London because you're very much a Londoner. And um, I noticed in your the three theatrical films you've made, they're all very much about London and haven't set against London. Is that conscious? Are you sort of... Uh, um, committed to bringing London to the screen like that? Or is that just a happy accident that the three films have all been, had such key London elements? I mean, it feels like a bit of a happy accident, but I'm sure it's not entirely, you know, I do feel very rooted in London. It's the world I know. And I grew up here and I um, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about different communities here. I had immigrant grandparents who came to London and thought about their experiences and um, so I feel quite wedded to it. Film London is doing amazing things and lots of organisations are working here. You know, it, it's an exciting city to film in. And as you see in Rocks, you know, you've got so many different communities here which make it the vibrant place it is. So there are so many stories you could tell. I mean, when we were researching Rocks, we had to keep on throwing out so many versions of what Rocks could be just because we could only make one film. But I hope that the young Londoners who we worked with or, you know, people who see it are inspired to tell their own stories because I'd love to see all those stories. I don't think there's just one story to be told even about that estate in East London. I think you could have told 10 versions of it. Absolutely. Um, what are you looking for next? If you're sort of, you know, there, there is a trend in your work. I don't know if that's deliberate, but there's a trend in your work for sort of representing unseen or underheard um, stories and, and people. And I wonder what you're looking at next. Like what is who's who's next? Who deserves the sort of Sarah Gavron spotlight? Well, I'm, I'm working on that at the moment. and I'm doing lots of research and, um, you know, the, my process I mean I'm reading stuff and I'm researching and I'm going to see things and I'm sort of absorbing what's out there and trying to work out where to go next and developing quite a few projects um but not it's not yet clear exactly what will be the next one but working with some of the people I've worked with before and excited about yeah telling stories of people you haven't seen before on or you don't often see on your I can't wait to see who, who you're going to be referencing uh, in your next project. But can you just um, tell us a little bit more about the, the, you know, the 
people talk about drama as the sort of disruption of ritual, sort of conflict or changes in everyday life. And the last two years have disrupted so much ritual for all of us. Um, I'm curious about what you're sort of looking at now and whether the last two years have informed what you're doing or, um, you know, what you're into, what you're watching now. It's a really interesting phrase, that disruption of ritual. I haven't thought of it, conceived of it in that way. But yeah, I think that's right. We've had a really kind of seismic um, time we've gone through. And I think it's really hard to digest. And it's really hard as a creative person. And I know from having conversations with other people in the industry and playwrights and artists that it's confusing and you don't quite know what to do. And it feels like it has to be something that has meaning. But we also know the importance of escapism and entertainment at this time. And we've all relied on that. Um, so I think it's a particularly confusing moment, but I think that out of it, there'll be really interesting stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what everybody makes of it. Um, for me, it's always very, very personal. And I go back to sort of stories that I've lived with for a long time or areas that have sort of niggled away at me that I wanted to do. Um, so I, I can't kind of um, consciously say I'm responding to this time, but I'm sure it will be reflected in the work in some way. Thank you to Sarah Gavron for joining us. As of this recording, you can watch her newest feature, Rocks, on Netflix. Now here's Robert Kurvitz discussing video game narratives. Hi, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Really great to meet you. Good to meet you too, Charlie. We are here to talk about uh, Disco Elysium, but also about video games and narrative and drama. So there's a lot to cover here. Uh, Disco Elysium is a game steeped in philosophical and literary influences. If someone has played the game and they want to submerge themselves more into its influences, what do you suggest they read? Oh, wonderful question. A good, good, good opportunity for me to clear up uh, some of the misconceptions around uh, uh, around uh, suggested uh, literature and, and art, uh, uh, which, uh, you know, you, uh, I guess writers tend to be very pedantic about these things. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to miscredit someone. Uh, you don't want to want to miscredit someone for, um, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I have a, a kind of one, two, three to, um, to look, uh, look to, if you want to, experience something that Disco Elysium is definitely uh, inspired by. Uh, number one, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, it is just, uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a huge uh, anime, avid, uh, uh, fan of, avid, uh, of anime, and, and I'm not very, I don't have a very good uh, education on, on, on the others there. Because I, I started with this one and I was like, oh, oh, oh my God, where's it going to go? And then I haven't experienced anything like that after it. But yeah, the the eschatology, the the reckless take on Christianity, uh, the the absolute uh, colossal size of it and its gestures and, and and what it says about what it what it just goes and says about about humanity and and, and souls and uh, it's it's truly colossal. It's how I imagine it. The, it looks like the end of Evangelion is what I imagine it looks like when world revolution comes. <laughs> Blood-shaped crosses exploding from space. <laughs> Human bodies uh, popping like zits to uh, form a, a unified uh, o- red ocean of something. Uh, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so hugely, the, the more apocalyptic 
pale side and then the larger part of disco elysium which disco elysium only shows a very small part of our you can see little parts of there and i've started giving this recommendation to uh, to people who like disco elysium and so on and the second is of course uh, planescape torment the 1999 uh, crpg uh, by uh, black guile so this is our this is the video game that we suggest what uh, what black island and then chris avalon were able to do on that uh, was uh, yeah was uh, epochal and uh, and then uh, it kind of showed us you can take like novel sized ambitious ambitions to video games and then that the format of the rpg specifically can house a story uh, of of even more perhaps complexity than 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 a, than a large novel by now, it's definitely uh, superseded uh, in complexity that, uh, that that art form, uh, just uh, narrative-wise. But uh, uh, but yeah, we I don't I don't know if I would have been able to make that leap of imagination to think that hey, I I'll, I'll try to realize my my ambitions as a novelist in games without Planescape Torment. And the third one is uh, is uh, Germinal by. Uh, the French novelist Emile Zola. So it's a it's a novel and something very ancient in addition to to an anime and a and a CRPG. Uh, but uh, it is, in my opinion, for me, it is the most it is the most is the highest technical achievement of of uh, of of narrative building in in a novel that I've I've read. There are perhaps novels that I emotionally like more, although I. Can't think of one currently, but uh, just as a literary achievement uh, in in nineteenth century realism, which um, to me continues, and to all of our writers in Zaum continues to be the kind of high watermark, or even like a quality standard of of, uh, of literature or narrative or anything, which is basically where the modern high quality narrative was was discovered. Uh, I don't think realism is the name of a genre. I think it's a quality standard. Uh, and then I think uh, things that aren't realist, for example, Disco Elysium, which doesn't take place in our reality, can strive towards realism as a standard, just as believability or similitude of, of the world. I believe a lot of modern science fiction tries to go that way and then look no further than, than the greatest of the 19th century re- realist novels. In, in my opinion, it's greater than greater than Tolstoy even, and, uh, and, and it's also ex- extremely similar in, in many of its themes to Disco Elysium. So yeah, those three, Germinal, Plainscape Torment, and, and Neon Genesis Evangelion, I would say, are the, the three that I, I suggest are the closest to my heart when we were making Disco Elysium. You mentioned uh, during that about realism and about uh, the lack of realism or a diversion away from realism in Disco Elysium, uh, which actually led me to something I want to talk about, I don't want to get into spoilery ter- territories, but there are some supernatural elements to Disco Elysium uh, that I will not reveal. Um, the investigation into those elements is one of my favourite parts of the game because it does add so much texture and, and colour to the story. So I was wondering, in your initial conception of the idea as a murder mystery, as a detective story, was there always something otherworldly about that or did that come later? All of our work in Disco Elysium comes off of uh, off of the world building we've uh, we've done for for the Elysium setting, uh, which we have done 
for the past 20 years. I think I was 15 or 16 when I started working on it. Yeah. And uh, so, so uh, the, the, uh, as we say in, in our writing, the most possibly most uncomfortable way, supernatural uh, elements uh, in, in Disco Elysium are, are inert to the Elysium setting. So um, the Pale, for example, uh, which is this um, territory on, in that world, uh, uh, an anti-reality mass. Uh, and then the, all of these, uh, they, they spring from the setting first, so, so that was the starting point for them. But generally, I, I, I believe there is something strange happening in there's something strange happening in the human mind and something strange happening in, in, in imagination and fiction. For me, it is almost inconceivable to write a story where there isn't, isn't a, 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 an otherworldly element to it. And then the more realistic, uh, so, sort of the, the, the bigger you want your, your supernatural element to be, the more realistic your, your story needs to be. And almost I, I, I use this funny term supernatural because I do not I don't like this word supernatural. It uh, you know it uh, first of all it has this weird uh, language logic to it above nature and like I, uh, I I don't quite understand the meaning of it and I I, I believe maybe but but that, that is the term that that people use but uh, but maybe an otherworldly element of, or, or or even a religious element would. Uh, would, would be more more to my liking uh, for that word, but uh, there is something happening that that that, that is very hard to write stories, and people don't like stories that don't have those elements in them. If you look at all the, I don't know, the most uh, the biggest box office hits, or or or, or only crime essentially maybe can do without uh, uh, elements like that. It's uh, it's it's it seems incredibly meaningless, you know. Uh, to write a story like that. A very good example is True Detective, uh, who have a, have a very nice, Nick Pizzolatta has put a very nice little overtone of Lovecraftian, or not maybe Lovecraftian, maybe a cosmic horror to it. And then it it, it gives it richness and, and texture and depth and, and, and makes me want to think about it. If it wouldn't be there, I wouldn't like the series nearly as much as I, as I do. So there was a thing when we were even marketing this game uh, or, or communicating about this coalition, which was how do we how do we make sure that people understand that it's not a noir game, like it's uh, it's not a, it's not a dry detective story. Uh, it's not going to have you're not going to be only the griminess of the streets and so on. It's it's like uh, this, uh, and then there's the word supernatural. And a lot of people asked like, is there anything supernatural in it? And then we were we we're glad to answer yes, uh, but but I think like. The, yeah, the, if you want to look for something poetic and beautiful, then, and then of course it's not a consumer's job to ask, is there something miraculous in it? <laughs> Does it turn water into wine? But, uh, but uh, as, a, as an author, yes, you would prefer yeah, something, uh, something rapturous of that nature. Mental health and stability are a core element of Disco Elysium both in terms of narrative and gameplay mechanic. How do you think video game design compares to other artistic mediums like uh, film and television for tackling serious emotional issues? Better. Uh, if you make it your own, if you, if you are also a, a designer, uh, if, you, if you look at writing and design as one and the same thing, which in a narrative-led game it should be, uh, then, then it is possible to make representational tools uh, uh, to make uh, uh, psychological uh, uh, the psychological part of your narrative uh, 
simply more effective than than non-interactive fiction. You're just looking at surfaces. You're not participating in the story. But uh, games and and to a lesser extent, or possibly greater extent, but not as monetizable tabletop role-playing games can achieve a level of psychological effect that uh, that surpasses uh, to me, uh, or at least uh, uh, it's in the same way uh, uh, weight class as 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 the kind of uh, uh, best implemented uh, non-linear stories. So it, simply because you force the person to make the decisions themselves, and then if you if you if you if you come up with the me- design game design mechanisms, and this needs to be serious game design. Like this is one of the things that I think narrative games are have a lot to learn from is that they get. Uh, get uh, uh, rightfully uh, uh, titled uh, walking simulators and, and so on for, for then having no gameplay. But uh, then you are not using the entire, in my opinion, of course, walking simulators are, are great works of art and then uh, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, do their own important part in this. But for where I am most interested in, to use the complete uh, tool set of a game and to kind of really put uh, put the reader into the cockpit of the characters and then make them understand the in- incredible internal tensions and, and calculations of making these decisions and then having them be the person who makes those decisions and see see their outcomes work out. Uh, I think the, the level of effect there is, uh, is uh, you know, it's, it's great. And then we're just beginning to scratch the surface with, with games like, uh, like Disco Elysium, with where could it, you know, really pushed one of the things i noted when i was playing it is that the game foregoes many traditional rpg elements such as the ability to like romance characters and build romantic arcs of your own and also traditional combat um elements in favor of like investigation and character development and building those sort of platonic and otherwise relationships. I was wondering, was that a conscious decision that you made in production? And if so, why? Yeah, we, uh, we made the conscious decision of not making any money with this game. And then so we, so we cut out all the things that people like in RPGs, combat and romances. <laughs> and then we took it upon ourselves to, to try to explain to people like uh, for, for, for half a decade that, no, man, like it really works. Like it is, it is fun. <laughs> no one, like a lot of people say discoalism is like they recommend discoalism to people, but I don't hear a lot of people saying it's, it's fun, but I think it is. And it wouldn't be a successful game if it weren't. It is, but it, it is engaging and, uh, and that we did everything we could to make it engaging and, and, and to make it manipulate with the reader's attention. And we used every trick in the book and these are cheap books cheap tricks even cheap books and cheap tricks <laughs> but but we even used combat it has a very I, I i'm very glad of how the combat scene worked out it has a huge set piece combat sequence which is more inspired by heat by michael mann which has this central beautiful combat sequence and the rest is just a slow burner uh, uh than 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 rpgs but but it is a big one and then it has uh, huge consequences uh for the world, and and then that we wanted every we wanted there to be combat sequences, but we wanted also for there not to be a dissonance between what happens in the combat system and in the story. And usually, video games uh, just don't solve that uh, logical dissonance in any way. But we decided to to 
to solve it in favor of, of the narrative. So if someone gets killed in combat, they're killed and then all the emotional baggage that comes with it or injured and so on goes with it. Uh, and then for that reason, we couldn't have many of them. And then with the romance uh, side, uh, uh, it is also a romance. Uh, there is a romanceable character in it, but they do not want you anymore. And then that's what uh, what what you have to come to terms with. And I believe, you know, I believe that is a, for my personal taste, Eastern European tastes uh, of, of romance novels, that is a uh, a more uh, uh, romantic. <laughs> romance uh, story. If you look at the, like what what the ro- romance meant for the romantics, you know it uh, it, uh, it it's not like uh, like uh, um, uh, Shelley and uh, and his friends were uh, uh, or Yeats were writing uh, stories about how uh, you know uh, you you, f- you find a uh, find a, a wingless elf and and uh, and then fall in love with them and. Have a have an inventory item called baby. <laughs> it's, it was, you know, no one hasn't liked you in years, man. <laughs> more, it was more more along those lines of romance. Uh, so, so I would like to say that we kept those things, but we we used them uh, quite differently. But then, of course, we also wanted to see what happens if you do use them differently and you don't lean on them for content. And then what happens is that you end up writing a million words, and, and it's uh, incredibly. Uh, uh demanding from a writer but we wanted to see the like i guess in your f- 30s i was i just got 30 when i started writing that game you really want to see what comes out of you as a human being like the responsibility of basically having to write and then storyify every part of, of an rpg and it was uh it was a very interesting and, and i hope successfully enough experiment for other people to look into it uh, too though it's i don't like i i don't i don't think i advise people to to try to make like disco likes or whatever i i it it should not it's like there are better things to do with your life i so yeah, this is a podcast we're trying to reach out to people who want to get involved in their chosen creative industries. Um, and I know when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a video game designer, but I didn't pursue it because it seems like such a vast undertaking. I was wondering if you're if you could sort of act as a case study and tell me a bit about how this project started and what were like the first steps to getting into an actual real life video game. It's not easy to get into the video game industry, and it's a problem of the video game industry, uh, and it, it's a problem that um, that starts with um, starts with uh, starts with uh, oh there are technical problems in in programming, which uh, which is still such an early early science and early art and also a way of writing uh, and then video ga- and then just software development in general is I, I hope one day it will become easier as it is than it is nowadays like it, it, it truly is a very complicated psychological puzzle to to make people uh, develop uh, a, a software product and then video games are <laughs> they're not uh, like programmers don't say hmm, I hope I could work in, in video games they, they really have their act together <laughs> the, the best uh, pro- practices and uh, and uh, and then production lines are in video games like it's you don't they don't get as much money as they get uh, programmers as they get in in other fields of, uh, of, of software development and just uh, the level of organization is <laughs> It's it's quite quite often artists are like way too close to, to the process and then uh, 
creating the the, the chaos that, uh, that that they tend to create. So it's uh, it's it's a problem. Uh, I, I believe games can uh, and must evolve by getting people into games who aren't games people. Uh, there's a lot of games people in games already, and then that, that's not how an art form continues evolving by just uh, you know referencing itself. Uh, like uh, <laughs> between me and you in this uh, podcast that we're making, I don't think Super Mario is like an incredible achievement of of humanity. I, I'm very sorry. Uh, I, I work in video games. I probably shouldn't shouldn't say this, but uh, but like. Uh, referencing and, and recycling uh, platformer tropes from from super mario and and uh, referencing how they are the uh, the beginning and end of of how to um, explain mechanics to a to to a, to a player and and so on i like uh, i i believe there was a time to do that and and uh, and then we've already gotten a lot of mileage out of it and then very truthfully and justly rightfully did all that but but now uh, you know, for for this art form to grow, we need to start referencing other art forms and uh, and then getting people who aren't that much into games uh, into it, especially writing wise. As it stands, it's it's uh, it is almost you have to kind of go to war against reality uh, to get uh, artists into video games, and and then it's even a war to continue being in video games. So. If that is the goal of your your, your podcast, then, then sadly my my answer is just that we're all doomed, and you should uh, just uh, <laughs> write uh, poems uh, uh, to God. <laughs> that that does actually lead me quite neatly into my last question, which is that like you have done loads of different creative things over your career. You've made music, you wrote a novel. What drew you to video game design as the next step in your creative career? Uh, well, I found myself at a at a at a, at a dead end. Uh, like uh, as much as I love, uh, as much as I love. Uh, uh, self-sustained kind of uh, I can do it alone nature of of, of novels. Uh, there's just so much that you can do alone in this world, and then uh, not like as you can see from TV writing writers' rooms, uh, narrative uh, design is now in 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 this phase where uh, one man can't do it anymore. The the greatest narratives to, narratives told today are stories told today they are told by groups of, of authors and many authors. Uh, and uh, and then uh, it you just you know it's just not uh, not feasible to uh, to compete uh, against uh, all of the credits of of the wire or, or or succession and then that's where great huge narratives are nowadays so uh, so as a novelist I, I just I just couldn't punch in that weight class I couldn't get to that place I want to I want to do epic things as they said in the odds. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and uh, and then I, and I didn't uh, I didn't uh, like the idea of starting to do TV because I wanted I wanted, uh, mm, I wanted uh, writing to be uh, the thing that people experience as it, as it is in a novel I wanted that to be the carrying weight uh, I wanted I wanted to take the responsibility for what happens complete responsibility for what happens in the reader's brain essentially and then that I wanted to be where the buck stops. Uh, and then in TV, you know, there are so many uh, links in the chain between the writer and, and the and the ultimate neurological event in the in the in the in the, in the audience's uh, brain. So, 
uh, actors are uh, participating in it, directors, and, and a whole lot of people. And I wanted it to be, okay, a couple of links is good, but I wanted it to be a slightly le- fewer of them. Uh, I've learned to say fewer <laughs> after living in England for two years. Uh, and, uh, and, then the, and games were the place where, where writing could do that, where like you could just present text in a, in a very flashy and interesting and, and novel kind of uh, uh, hopefully way that we were kind of inspired by Twitter and, and quite, quite a lot of these modern text mediums, uh, but, without, but, but still having to having to and getting to carry like the, the main weight of, of the experience TV writers how do they how do they deal with not being the superstars <laughs> thank you so much thanks so much for joining me thanks for taking part yeah I hope I didn't uh, I didn't end too much on too much of a bummer note uh, just because I say it's it's hard to get into video games and uh, uh, you know it doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, prove me wrong and uh, <laughs> and then then still do it although it's painful and uh, would probably result in disaster. Thank you to Robert Kurvitz for joining us. Disco Elysium is currently available to purchase on all major games consoles. Next week, we're talking thrillers with some truly fantastic guests, including no less than the Bond producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. Until then, this has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London. I'm Edwin Wooten. Thank you very much.